0: Registry Matters is an independent production. The opinions and ideas here are that of the host, and do not reflect the opinions of any other organization. If you have problems with these thoughts, FYP.
1: Recording live from FYP Studios, East and West, transmitting across the internet, this is episode 251 of Registry Matters. Good evening, sir. How are you?
2: Doing awesome. Now, how do you know we're actually transmitting across the internet or can you confirm that?
1: Uh, Since we have people in chat. So first of all, welcome everyone in chat. And I know that there is somebody that is behind the bars. There's somebody in Maryland. You're obviously on the other side of the planet and uh, some like there are people all over the place. So, yeah, I can confirm we are at least like two thirds of the United States is covered.
2: Okay, so we are transmitting across the, across the internet. Good. We
1: are definitely transmitting across the internet. And uh, just, uh, you know, I total I didn't do any closeout last week. I don't think I did the, uh, make sure that you press the likes and subscribe, subscribe buttons. Oh, it's on this side. Press those things for on YouTube and do the bell and all that stuff so that you get notified. But uh, yeah, Al uh, confirms. He says, I'm getting it through the interweb. So he's getting it through those tubes that, uh, do he said. Who is that? Who is it said that the, the tubes of the internet? God, I I always think it's Orrin Hatch, but it's somebody else. Ancient history. Do you know what I'm
2: talking about? I remember, but I don't remember who.
1: Oh, okay. I thought you, God, you remember the most obscure crap, and you can't remember that? It's like Al Gore inventing the internet. This doofus said that the uh, the internet is a whole bunch of tubes. <sighs> <laughs> all right, sir. Uh, so we've we've done all of it. The uh, all the intros and the welcomes and all that stuff. So uh, give me the rundown for the night.
2: We're going to do a bunch of stuff tonight. We've got a couple of listener questions. We've got three cases to go over. And the cases are going to consume the time. So we're going to have to move out all these articles that I carefully selected with great <laughs> deal of diligence and thorough analysis. And then I've got a correction to make on the transcript from episode 248. Uh, our, our fabulous transcriptionist didn't catch it. And so I referred to a judge, a U.S. federal judge in New Mexico, and her name is Martha Vasquez, and that's spelled V-A-Z-Q-U-E-Z. So anybody who read that and they saw that B-O-S-C-O-A or whatever it said there, we're talking about Judge Vasquez, who's a federal judge here in this state.
1: All right, then. Uh, Well, I guess we will then move over and start things off with a question that was submitted. And it says, in the state of Hawaii, indecent exposure is no longer a sex crime, but it is now classified as petty misdemeanor. Therefore, you are not required to register for this offense in Hawaii. Uh, my question is: Does a registered person with an indecent exposure offense require a passport with an identifier to travel? Since this offense is not specific to a minor, that's interesting. What do you think?
2: It's a great question. And remember, this is marginal legal advice that you're receiving here Uh-oh. on this program. Uh, for those who have ever heard a program on the radio called "Handle on the Law," and he says it's marginal legal advice. But it would be my opinion, for whatever it's worth, that you have very little to worry about on that because, first of all, indecent exposure is not even recommended to be a registrable offense by the big old bad federal government. It's not on the list of offenses that the states are encouraged to require registration of. So since the government doesn't suggest that it be covered as a registered offense, it would be extremely unlikely to me that they would require that, that to be on the list of offenses that would be marked by, but would require a marking on the passport.
1: Okay. Uh, and then moving along then this one's long. So, uh, uh sit back, have a sip of whatever you're drinking and, uh, hang on. Me, 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 me. Okay, I was listening to episode two forty eight or two forty nine, and you mentioned that Narsal took cases based on it being a very good chance of a win of something that they could win, a slam dunk for financial gain. I understand the money angle, and that is the very reason I thought I would send this to you. I believe that my situation could be a win based on what has gone down in Tennessee over the past couple of years. I'm not a legal beagle at all, but I have included references listed below. To a couple cases that you and Narsal have noted, one with a great follow-up authored by you. I am oversimplifying, but I think my case is so similar to any of these cases, you could change a few phrases and submit a case for me. I really think it is another slam dunk, if the landscape is still the same. In a nutshell, I was arrested in a sting in September—excuse uh, me, December of 1996 and sentenced in January of 1997. I got out of prison in June 20 of 2000 and have registered without issues since my charges are two counts of sexual exploitation uh, of a minor and one count of aggravated sexual exploitation of a minor or exploration, sexual exploration of a minor aggravated only because of transportation on diskettes in my car. At that time, my time period under the disabilities and restraints of the registry is exactly the same as some of the cases mentioned. I would love it if you guys would choose to take this on. I also understand that I'm asking, of what I'm asking is no small thing.
2: Well, well, what I would say is that I don't believe that it would be fair to characterize what I said as we take on cases for financial gain, we being narcil, because the podcast doesn't do cases. What we do is what every organization that does cases does they look at the winnability of a case, and they look at if they win the case, they would be compensated for their fees. These cases drag on and on for years and years. And you've got hundreds of thousands of dollars of billable hours in them. And it makes it prohibitively expensive to do these cases that are gonna run on for years and years. So you're looking at, is this case winnable? And if it is winnable, then the financial gain is going to come with it if you actually do prevail. But you don't sit down and go through cases, oh, is there any money here? Is there any money here? Is there any money there? That's <laughs> not what you do. You look at the merits of the claim uh, that the person's making, and you look at the existing body of case law. Now, we don't look at whether it's right or wrong, that it's morally repugnant because that doesn't necessarily mean anything. We have the right in a free society to make laws and impose them on ourselves that are not wise from a public policy perspective. And we have the right to do things other than breach the constitution. And therefore, when we're looking at these cases, something may be an unsound public policy, but it may not be unconstitutional. And therefore we're looking at what is the body of case law? Can we cite to, to something that's binding precedent that would allow us to have a good shot of winning That based on the facts this as, as the person puts forward. In Tennessee, I do believe, based on the binding case law of the Sixth Circuit, that there are a lot of winnable claims that could take place in Tennessee. NARSIL is just a very small organization. We pale in comparison to anything out there like the ACLU, the NAACP, the Pacific Legal Foundation, which we're going to talk about later tonight, that where they have a huge legal staff. We have absolutely no legal staff. What constrains us is we're looking for contract attorneys that we can give a small amount of money to and agree to cover their out-of-pocket expenses with the hope that we get those funds back if we prevail. And that means the attorney, the law firm, is also taking a substantial risk. And They're just gun-shy about these cases because they drag on and on and on, and they devour their practice, particularly if they're a one- or two-person law firm. So that's what goes on here. But I would love to see this submitter of this question go out and find an attorney in Tennessee that is willing to work with an organization such as Narsal, that believes in your case, bring that case back to us through the website where we have a, a case submission process to submit it, answer the questions fully that... That we have in terms of is there an is there an attorney out there? Has the attorney researched the case law? Is the attorney willing to work with us? And does the attorney believe you have a meritorious case that you can win? Do all those things, and we might very well take a look at your case. But a lot of the work is going to fall on you because we don't have a vast staff to go out and find an attorney in Tennessee that would be willing to do that for us. We just don't, <laughs> not yet, in our development.
1: And also what we're going we're gonna to mention later is ha, ha, an attorney for the Butts case, like how many hours did he put into it? And it, when did that go to court, like 2018 when it went into the courtroom?
2: I think we started in 19, but here we're on 23, okay. four years later, hundreds yeah. of hours of, you know, of billable hours that were racked up in that case that we're going to get into.
1: Yeah. And I, I mean, I'm saying that as uh, I know that it was, it was pre-COVID. I know that that, that part's true. Uh yeah I'm I the more that I have been following how court cases go anything that you hear on the news uh, of of a case that took this long when it started and all that stuff and then following them more directly working with you and and so forth they take ages to go through it took me what a year to do the termination of uh finishing my sentence and then getting off the registry that took me something close to a year or even longer i forget exactly when i started when i stopped but it took forever
2: And that was a case that did not have any impact beyond you. That was a process that exists in the state. And therefore, these things are constitutional challenges. They are going to be appealed. They're not going to let a statute be declared unconstitutional and just say, yep, (laughs) we agree. They're just not going to do that. Right. Okay.
1: Are you ready to dive into the meat and potatoes of of the night?
2: I am. So we're going to do three cases. We've got one from the Seventh Circuit Court of Appeals. We've got the one from Georgia, the Butts County that went up to the Eleventh Circuit. And then we have the challenge mounted by the Pacific Legal Foundation. So everybody, there's there's got to be something in one of those three cases that you'll find interesting, I hope. I hope so, too. All right. So
1: Seventh Circuit Court of Appeals from Indiana. You people! put in this case that's pending god larry can we not do pending stuff we need stuff that's like now but uh so this one is pending in the seventh circuit court of appeals for this episode my recollection i do recall that we've talked about this case numerous times why can't you let it go
2: (laughs) uh well i can't because the litigation continues and people want to know about it so i i can't let go of it
1: All right, well, uh, let's do some recap. This is an ongoing saga in the case of Brian Hope versus the Commissioner of Indiana Department of Correction. Last Friday, the United States Court of Appeals for the Seventh Circuit heard oral arguments over Indiana's PFR Registration Act. And why, again, why do these things take so long? So why is this one taking so forever?
2: Well, uh, this is the latest skirmish in an ongoing protracted legal struggle between the Department of Corrections and the uh, district court is, uh, for the Southern District of Indiana, and the judges on the Seventh Circuit Court of Appeals. So, so there's like a three-way struggle going on here.
1: All right. And then uh, some, some background. So Indiana enacted the law known as SORA in 1994, requiring that those convicted of PFR-type things in other states must also register as a PFR in Indiana if they live or work there. It also contains a provision stating that convicted offenders moving to Indiana must register even if their offense took place before the enactment of the law. This isn't that unusual as most states have similar requirements. Do they not?
2: Uh, they do, but due to previous decisions from the Indiana Supreme Court, this contrasts with the law's treatment of those who committed pre sor offenses while living in Indiana and those who continue to live there after their offense. Those in-state residents are not required to register if they weren't required to do so prior to Sora's enactment or subsequent revisions. The divergent treatment between in-state and out-of-state offenders prompted a constitutional challenge to the law, and it was filed back in October of 2016.
1: I see. All right, so let me explain a little bit more. The plaintiffs are six men placed on the Sora, I'll say that in like big scare quotes, uh, the registry, despite being convicted of their offenses prior to Sora taking effect. The main claim that Sora inhibited their constitutional right to travel across state lines and violated the state's ex post facto clause and the federal equal protection clause. The assertion was that they are punished under a law that did not exist when they committed their offenses, and even more severely than longtime Indiana residents. What did the court say in regard to their assertions?
2: Well, in July of 2019, a ruling by U.S. District Judge Robert Young, he agreed. Judge Young barred the state from applying SORA, SORA uh, registration requirements to the six men, which in turn prompted the Indiana Department of Correction. To appeal the decision to the seventh circuit
1: and okay now i'm starting to like remember what we talked about following a lengthy appeal process they concluded that an en banc hearing the majority of the appellate court in august 2021 chose to overturn young's ruling on the travel and post facto claim and remand the case for further evaluation on the equal protection claim explain that please
2: well let me first say that Mr. Hope reached out to us some time ago after we had discussed this case, and he pointed out that I had missed something because I speculated whether or not there would be an, a, a cert petition filed. And he reminded me that there was actually unresolved claims in this case that were being referred back to Judge Young. So so that is a, is what happened here. The, uh, the plaintiffs uh, argued that Sora violates their right to travel by treating them differently based on their length of residence in Indiana. But writing for the Seventh uh, Circuit, Judge Amy St. Eve wrote in the 2021 majority opinion, quote, Sora may affect newer residents disproportionately, but it does not discriminate based on residency. Consequently, it does not violate the right to travel as the Supreme Court has articulated it.
1: Um, And as I recall, there were some undecided issues that Judge Young was ordered to consider on remand. Do I have that right?
2: Yes, you do. And that's what that's what he corrected me on, because I was thinking you know, that that was the end of the case. And uh, yes, the, the case returned to the district court, and jo- Judge Young once again found for the plaintiffs. He ruled this past May, the store of violates the Equal Protection Clause, and barred the state from requiring the 6 men to register as PFRs. And as expected, the Department of Correction appealed Judge Young.
1: And so now we're back at the Seventh Circuit again.
2: You're correct. Uh, why do you even bother having me here? You've already got this stuff.
1: Because the 25 people that are listening in chat right now, they want to hear you talk about it. Um. All right. So I noted in the article that during last Friday's oral oral arguments, U.S. Circuit Court uh, Judge Frank Easterbrook voiced frustration with the case as a whole, calling the now six-year-old legal procedure annoying. I don't think I've ever heard a judge use that kind of term before. Have you?
2: I have not. That's generally considered disrespectful to litigants, but uh, apparently that's what he said. I wasn't there. Now, this article is going to be in the notes. We took great lengths to depoliticize this, but the writer of the article that built the foundation for the story was very critical and tried to paint it as a red versus blue and pointed out that which judges were appointed by whom i've totally eliminated all that from here but if you want to see what the writer of the article said you can go through that and they did they did paint this as a red versus blue issue
1: And you hate when i do that so
2: (laughs) well well, that's why i depoliticized it because I, i don't believe that judges rule that way and i'm in somewhat denial although when they come from conservative appointments, they tend to be more conservative in how they apply, and that can be not, go- not be good for us on many things, but in some instances, it can be good. So I just don't like to go down that path, but it is in there for those of you who want to look at it. I, I don't see how,
1: it, under any circumstances, you could completely remove all of your biases and just read the text. I mean, even as textual as Scalia would have been. There would always be some level of personal bias that you can't get around in there. I just can't see that you could operate any other way, just completely like a, a robot, automaton, and not factor in your own personal biases. It, even preferences to things like what you would say, well, I think that we should bring that up on CERT. No. All right. Um, as All I recall, right. you had written and for the Narsal newsletter when the Seventh Circuit overturned Judge Young. You people wrote, it is worth noting that the Seventh Circuit was very creative in how it managed to undo the previous victory. Uh, Judge St. Eve, writing for the court, noted that Wallace versus the state, and that's 905 Northeast, 2nd something, 371. I can never read these things. Larry, would you please translate that, please?
2: Oh, you did just fine.
1: Okay. All right. And then I uh, they did not foreclose all retroactive applications of Sora because the same day that the state Supreme Court decided Wallace it issues an opinion in Jensen versus the state. Unlike Wallace, Jensen pleaded guilty in 2000, which was after Sora's enactment. Why is that significant?
2: It's significant because they crafted a way to avoid the ex post facto clause. They reasoned that at the time of Jensen's conviction, Sora required that he register for 10 years. And before the expiration of Jensen's 10 year requirement, the Indiana General Assembly amended SORA to mandate that offenders like him register for life. He had argued that the extension is applied to him violated the ex post facto clause. Unfortunately, the Indiana Supreme Court disagreed. This is crucial because in contrast to Wallace, who had no obligations before the legislature amended SORA to cover him, Jensen did. So this, the uh, circuit decided the way we escape this deluge of people moving here is that we say, well, it's a different situation. And they were very careful and crafty about that.
1: I see that. The Jensen court stated the broad and sweeping disclosures, uh, disclosure requirements were in place and applied to Jensen at the time of his guilty plea in January of 2000. Nothing in that regard was changed by the 2006 amendments. They found that merely increasing the length of an existing registration obligation did not rise to the level of punishment such that it violated the Indiana constitution. So what do you think happens next?
2: Well, really, all we can do is wait for this same Seventh Circuit that flipped Judge Young before to see if they're going to flip him again. If they flip him again, I think that this case is either done or it has to go to the Supreme Court. Now, Mr. Uh, Mister Hope may correct me, but I don't think there are any remaining claims. So this would send us to a cert petition, posture, or... or uh, would be done but uh i don't have a prediction because i'm mr gloom and doom
1: <laughs> but <laughs> you are that for sure you are mr doom and gloom. i was going to ask you to put on your little seance hat and uh get your crystal ball out with your long fingernails and like you know move around all, all, all like uh, a, a, a fortune teller would and see if you had any predictions that's what i was going to ask for you to do i
2: i i can predict that if i am correct that that this is the end of the litigation, except for a cert petition, I can predict that Marshall would very favorably review an application for assistance and partnering on this to go to the Supreme Court. We would be interested in this case because it's a very significant question.
1: Very well. And then we shall move on to what was probably, uh, we saw this coming. So Butts County Halloween update, which we're going to circle back to this one again, again, again and you put this in here in which we've discussed previously it's the halloween challenge in butts county georgia and you are clearly obsessed with this case we've conveyed to the audience that the 11th circuit court of appeals ruled in our favor yet here you are again you've brought it back fyp has so many issues to obsess over uh one case
2: well, we do have a lot of issues and we shouldn't obsess over a case unless it's relevant and this is relevant and so i went and so i'm obsessed there's news that just came out and i'm confident the audience would want to know
1: and uh so you know we had this like dry spell for like a month from thanksgiving to christmas and now here we are we have a deluge of information that comes out all of a sudden the first two weeks of, of january so what tell us larry tell us what is this earth-shattering news
2: Well, as a prevailing party, our legal team was awarded $298,000 for fees and expenses related to the challenge.
1: I'm sorry, could you please repeat that number? That was $298? $298,
2: $298,000 for legal fees and case out-of-pocket costs that were incurred.
1: That sounds like a lot to me. Um. Yeah, so I guess that qualifies as, uh, at least as news, is there anything else besides 300000 bucks?
2: Uh Well, there is. We have some nuances to get into in terms of the disingenuous arguments put forth by Butts County.
1: Oh, disingenuous. I like to hear that. All right, the court stated, The most useful starting point for determining the amount of a reasonable fee is the number of hours reasonably expected expended on the litigation multiplied by a reasonable hourly rate okay, so ten bucks an hour ten hours you get a hundred bucks. Uh, I'm guessing that the attorney and Butts County did not agree on the amount, which is the reason the court had to decide. so I bet you the um, the defendants said we should pay you a hundred bucks and our attorney said you should pay us a whole lot more.
2: you guessed correctly. the fee proposed <laughs> by our side was three hundred and fifty thousand and Butts County offered one hundred and ten. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
1: 10,000 bucks. Really? Like, I mean, for 100, a, like,
2: 100, 100, 110,
1: 110 that's still like, yep. uh, okay. Um, it's clear that the court came closer to what was requested. And what were some of the points of contention?
2: Well, the court noted it is well settled that a plaintiff is a prevailing party and thus ordinarily entitled to a fee award of some kind if the plaintiff has succeeded on any significant issue in litigation, which achieves some of the benefit the parties sought in bringing the suit. So Butts County, uh, they were kind of trying to imply that uh, we didn't prevail.
1: How 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 would they how would they bring that up and saying that they argued that we did not prevail when the judge said, "No, you can't do that."
2: Well. it... it This was prior to the judge ruling, but they were they were claiming when they saw the handwriting on the wall, they said that they would no longer enforce the uh, they would no longer enforce the sign. They would voluntarily not place the signs. But it was a bit late in the process after they saw the handwriting on the wall because they only saw the handwriting on the wall after litigation. Remember, we had a personal courier deliver the notice (laughs) to Butts County County attorney and to the sheriff's office. Do you remember that?
1: I seem to recall a story where the, the courier couldn't even find one of the attorneys. Like It was almost like uh, where you rent a box at the, the floor of a big office building, but that's your whole presence, That's suite 200, and it's just a box. Like I, th- The courier, excuse me, I almost misspoke there. The courier couldn't even find one of the attorneys.
2: But we, we did everything trying to not litigate. It was Buds County's choice to litigate. But since we don't have vast arsenal of attorneys, we were hoping that they would say, gee, this is a well-written letter. We're on thin ice here. We probably should not do this. But they chose this path of action. So we're, we're where we are. And all right, as, so, the court, as, as the court said, it cannot be reasonably disputed that Holden, which is one of the plaintiffs, is a okay. prevailing party.
1: Okay. All right. I see that. They stated the court entered... A permanent injunction against the defendants in Holden's Holden's favor, materially altering the legal relationship between Holden and the defendants by permanently uh, preventing certain behavior by Sheriff Long against Holden. The defendants assertion that Holden obtained a symbolic injunction is without merit. Although Reed and McClendon did not prevail, that does not affect the court's analysis. Whether representing only Holden or all three plaintiffs, the court finds that plaintiff's counsel would have performed the same work. Sure, because he was arguing the same thing for all of the people that were brought forward, whether they agreed with one or all of them. He had to do the same work to, to bring all six up.
2: Uh, that is so, correct.
1: So yeah. d- So, they argued about what the hourly rate was uh, going to be?
2: Yeah, uh, They did that as well. They, they did indeed. Mark, your check built at $500 an hour. And And, and, and tell me, they didn't didn't like that much.
1: I mean, is that a reasonable rate for an attorney roughly in the Atlanta area?
2: Uh, Not in that market, but it seems to be based on what this what this court decided.
1: Okay, And so Mr. Urachek, an Atlanta attorney, testified that when applicable, he charges a $500 hourly rate and believes that a rate of $500 per hour, uh, a conservative rate for complex federal litigation in uh, metropolitan areas within the 11th circuit mr ben god testified he charges 450 an hour when working on working non-contingency cases he further stated that contingency work justifies at least a $500 hourly rate moreover bruce harvey who has worked uh with experienced uh, uh statute 1983 georgia litigators what is ni- uh is that what's
2: subsection that's the that's the provision of the federal code that allows for a prevailing party to collect attorney's fees that's the civil rights section where you file okay. this is under t- title uh, 42 uh, subsection 1983.
1: okay um and testified by affidavit that his observation has been that attorneys in georgia who litigate section 1983 claims on the plaintiff's side with over 10 years of experience would charge at least 500 dollars an hour and what did the court ultimately decide then
2: uh they decided that that rate per hour is reasonable and it's noted uh, in the order on page seven
1: uh, you indicated that Butts County argued that the hours expended were redundant and unnecessary and uh, constituted overbilling. And what was the court's response to that?
2: On balance, the court disagreed. They stated, except as noted below, and there were some notes below, the court does not find that any hours claimed by counsel are excessive, redundant, or unnecessary. Apart from its detailed examination, the court historically considered the novelty and complexity of the case in determining the reasonable number of hours holistically Mm -hmm. is what i meant to say
1: oh you did okay i was like wow you you seriously mistyped that word um and i noted uh noticed that what appears to be a jab at butts county the court stated the defendants nitpick nearly every hour first the defendants argued that the plaintiffs did not carry their burden to show time entries were not duplicative that is to demonstrate that Mr. Yurchek and Mr. Bengard did not spend time doing the same work second the defendants ask the court to deduct a vague and block billing entries the defendants assert plaintiff's billing entries are almost all so vague that there is no telling what was done and that counsel committed a sin by block billing the court does not find that counsel's entries are so vague to require deductions on the contrary Uh, Unlike the defendants, the court had no difficulty telling what was done. Now that's
2: funny. Well, well, I agree. And I'm happy that we finally have found some unity on the definition of funny.
1: Finally. Okay, so without going into all the items that the court disallowed in uh, the fee recovery, I'd like to focus on the issue of the paralegal time. Did Butts County contest to that too?
2: Uh, Yes, they did. And to no avail. (laughs) After voluntary reductions of the paralegal hours, the plaintiffs requested 27.3 hours at a $75 rate for Ms. Mimi, I'm not sure how to pronounce her last name, Mr. Yuracek's legal assistant. At the evidentiary hearing, Mr. Yuracek stated that uh, his paralegal can do the same work as someone with a paralegal certification, which means that she doesn't have the certification, and that she does the same, if not more, work as, as his associate attorney's.
1: And the court stated time for work done by, excuse me, uh, excuse me, uh, time for work done by a legal assistant is recoverable as part of a prevailing party's award for attorney's fees and expenses, but only to the extent that the legal assistant performs work traditionally done by an attorney. And what's your take on the 75 smackaroos per hour?
2: Uh, It's extremely reasonable, particularly if the person does substantial legal work uh, and that work would have been. by an attorney they're actually saving money and 75 dollars an hour for a good paralegal for billing invoices is not uncommon i'm in a much smaller city and our paralegals are billed out at that rate and higher so no that's not unreasonable
1: um your point for putting this in is to illustrate how much our opponents will fight tooth and nail
2: Uh, yes it is one point and to convey to the legal community that there's good money to be made in the pursuit of quality cases. And that goes back to the point of the question from Tennessee. If we have a quality case, and this was a quality case from the beginning, I personally selected this case. I I wanted to undertake this challenge because everybody was wringing their hands saying that they're tired of having to put up signs and this. And I'm saying, well, you know, then let's do something about it. And uh, I got criticized because people said, well, there's bigger fish to fry. This helps lay the foundation for those bigger fish to fry. We establish that we can take on the establishment and win. We get a circuit presidential decision that's binding in the 11th Circuit. It's also persuasive authority throughout the land. And it also, hopefully, is an inspiration to other attorneys. It's kind of nice to cash a $300,000 check. Now, I expect Butts County will probably appeal this, and I bet you're going to ask me why, right?
1: (laughs) Well, yeah, sure. Why?
2: Well, it's a part of how the system is designed. You know, our great capitalist system, that's the greatest thing that's ever been devised, has a way of figuring out how to make money. And Butts County is a relatively small county. The population is somewhere in the 20 to 30,000 range. I'm not sure, but it's a small county. Sure. They don't have a full office staff attorney. They generally go with, with contract services in the smaller counties. So the contract will be awarded with a maximum amount to say for $300,000 or whatever the county commission uh, sets the budget at. Well, the county attorney likes to bill that 300,000. So this is an opportunity to not only extinguish the full amount of the contract, but also to come back to the county commission and ask for additional funding because we had this very complicated constitutional challenge. Therefore, like all the things that they protested about, that generated billable hours. Taking this up on appeal again, I think it's a long shot. Uh, Judge Treadwell did a remarkable job of laying out his reasons for the award, but that doesn't stop the fact that they will get paid. So everybody who believes the capitalist system is the greatest thing it's ever devised, it probably is, but it's not without some drawbacks, and this is one of them. Hey,
1: riddle me this, though. Uh, so Butts County, I wouldn't exactly call it affluent either. Does this dip into their county budget as far as what they're able to then provide for other services, public library, whatever else would be, they would be responsible for at that level. Does this dip into those funds?
2: It theoretically does unless Georgia provides their counties with some sort of insurance pool or unless the county has set aside a specific amount. Some counties set aside money for, for litigation as a part of their line item budget. So if they don't use it, they're putting money into a contingency fund for litigation. So it very well could, Based on what our attorneys are going to be paid, the county attorney has been paid that much as well, in all likelihood, close to it. So you're talking about a half million dollars. Folks, that sure, county, sure, sure, sure. we delivered a letter to you. We asked you, <laughs> please don't do this. We told you it was unconstitutional. So if it has dipped into your, to your other things, you can only blame yourselves because we begged you not to do this.
1: I just struggle to think that, that that I don't I don't know what their budget is. So, I, I you know, how how much of does a half million dollars kick in? Because they paid their attorney for them to lose to then pay us the money that was spent and not us. I mean, pay the attorney that was representing our side. And I just think that it's ridiculous that like do the do the people of the county then go. Come on, Sheriff, they delivered you a letter that you could have complied with. Basically for free, but now we're out a half million bucks. Good job.
2: Well, I think it's probably going to be not that significant to their budget. Their budget's probably a hundred million dollars or more. I'm guessing at least between fifteen hundred million dollars. But it certainly has an impact. And the the citizens will never know that that letter was delivered. I can assure you that Sheriff Long is not saying, "Well, folks, you know, I did get these bunch of liberal do-gooders came down here from out of state." And sent me a letter, and I told them that they could go F themselves, and I decided to to go on this uh, wild goose fantasy of mine of taking this thing to the Supreme Court. He's not going to tell the people that. They'll never know that. All right. Enough
1: of that then. Uh, well, anyway, good news. Congrats, uh, Mr. Yuracek. And uh, I hope that uh, covers some level of expenses, and you get to drive a nice car and live in a nice house. But thank you very much for your work. It was an incredibly interesting process to observe firsthand. I'll tell you that.
2: Well, you were, you were in the court room, as I recall, uh, weren't you?
1: I was, I was in the courtroom, and I was also the courier. Shh, don't tell anybody. God, I was scared. I was scared off my ass that day, Larry. I was scared to death that day doing that.
2: Oh, well, it'd been funny if they'd locked you up. I, that's
0: why I was scared. All right. Are you a first-time listener of Registry Matters? Well, then make us a part of your daily routine and subscribe today. Just search for Registry Matters through your favorite podcast app, hit the subscribe button, and you're off to the races. You can now enjoy hours of sarcasm and snark from Andy and Larry on a weekly basis. Oh, and there's some excellent information thrown in there too. Subscribing also encourages others of you people to get on the bandwagon and become regular Registry Matters listeners. So what are you waiting for? Subscribe to Register Matters right now. Help us keep fighting and continue to say F Y P.
1: We we, we shall move on to the Pacific Legal Foundation slash Axol Course Court uh Court update. and this is something of a breaking news that just came in late yesterday afternoon it's regarding the pacific legal foundation's challenge filed back in may can you remind me of your reaction at that time
2: Did, did i do that i don't remember doing that you
1: you probably la- laughed a little bit at the time actually i do do re- like personally recall you're like um that's probably not gonna go real well um right. and, and then i'll set it up a little bit in december of 2021 the attorney general adopted his final rule that specifies various registration requirements which went into effect on january 7th 2022 just slightly over a year ago Registration requirements. The rules state that it was promulgated pursuant to the attorney general's authority under 34 U.S. Code subsection 20912B, as well as other provisions authorizing the attorney general to take more specific actions in certain contexts. The rule declares the attorney general has exercised these authorities in previous rulemaking and issuances of guidelines under SORNA. As detailed in the rulemaking history and section by section analysis below, and the interpretations and policy decisions in the rule follow those already adopted in existing Sorna related documents. The present rule provides a concise and comprehensive statement of what sex offenders must do to comply with Sorna's requirements. Please can you turn that into normal language that everyone's eyes roll on the don't roll on the back of their head and they don't all fall asleep? Can you simply admit that this is the Attorney General? making shit up.
2: Uh no, I cannot admit that because it would be totally untrue to make such an admission. The United States Congress passed Adam Act back in two thousand six. President George Bush signed it into law. They made the law, not the Attorney General. So no I cannot make that admission. Oh God, you're
1: hopeless. Um they sought an injunction. The standards for getting an injunction are really, really high. Can you please explain what's going on there?
2: Sure, they're listed on page thirteen. A plaintiff seeking a preliminary injunction must establish. Now, when we talk about preliminary injunction, if you've had a full trial, that may be one of your that the items you've requested in your prayer for relief. If you've had a full trial, then you've won the injunction. But when you're asking for what's called a preliminary injunction, you're getting relief that you haven't won yet. You haven't had a hearing on the merits, so therefore the standard has to be high because the status quo is being Potentially altered by relief that you have not won, so therefore you must establish that you're likely to succeed on the merits, and that you're likely to suffer irreparable harm in the absence of a preliminary injunction, and that the balance of equities tips in favor, and that the injunction is in the public interest, and that's directly from page 13. I just changed a couple of the words, but that's directly from from the from the court's order.
1: Okay. And the plaintiffs presented four challenges to the rule in the motion. They argued the rule is unconstitutional in three ways. It is an exercise of an unconstitutional delegation of lawmaking authority. That's one. Number two, it unlawfully limits protected speech in violation of the first amendment. And number three, it violates due process by presuming plaintiffs guilt of a federal crime. Plaintiffs also argued that the rule contradicts statutory text regarding its definition of Conviction and I've heard you pontificate about the ripeness doctrine ripeness. The government argued that the case is not ripe, and they challenged standing uh, of the plaintiffs. In fact, I think you said that this case is not ripe for judicial review. What did the court say to that?
2: Uh, the court disagrees with me the, the judge stated the court rejects these arguments, far from an imaginary speculative injury. plaintiffs allege that they are already suffering serious injuries, not least because they are already presumed to be in violation of the law by the government or ever because there exists a credible threat of prosecution. The court finds that plaintiffs should not be required to await and undergo a criminal prosecution as a sole means of seeking relief. Now, I agree with the court that a person should not have to wait to undergo a prosecution for an issue. You know, that's not... I've never said that you have to wait for that. But I disagree that there's a a credible threat of prosecution. There is not. No prosecutorial entity has ever hinted that anyone who has been lawfully relieved of the duty to register will be prosecuted. This is a solution looking for a problem to remedy. As we all
1: know, Larry, you are very stubborn. Plaintiffs allege that the rule has already changed their behavior, including burdening their freedom of speech. As they explain, plaintiffs have refrained from speaking because they fear, quite reasonably, that California will comply with the Department of Justice's rule, which conditions uh, federal funding on California's collection of remote communication identifiers. And what do you people have to say in response to that?
2: Uh, it does not change my mind. The fact is that California has not changed its policy and it does not collect the information from people who who are not required to register. If you choose to be afraid of an imaginary boogeyman, I can't help you.
1: you, you I'm sorry, afraid of a what?
2: Of an imaginary boogeyman.
1: And would you tell me what an imaginary boogeyman would be if I'm imagining it? There are real boogeymen, well, Larry.
2: Well, if you've dreamed up something here, which... In my estimation, they have because there is no threat of credible, credible threat of prosecution here. So if you've obsessed over this to the point I've been released from the registry by order of a court or by simply timing out, I think in California, the only way you get off is by order of the court. They just have that process that they've developed. But if you've been relieved of a duty to register, And I think there's another process if you've had the expungement, which one of the plaintiffs have, they've had their certificate of rehabilitation or expungement. But if you've gone through those processes, there has been no one, federal, state, local, anywhere, has suggested that they're interested in prosecuting you. None. So that's the Mm -hmm. imaginary boogeyman.
1: And the plaintiffs allege that the government has issued an indictment for failure to register under Sorna, even though the defendant's predicate uh, PFR conviction in California had been set aside under California Penal Code Section 1203.4, subsection A. See U.S. versus Hardiman 597F supplement. Dude, I can't read all these things. Please, 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 please.
2: Oh, well, it's 597 mm-hmm. Federal Supplement, 2nd 1040 through 1047 through 1049, Northern District of California. Now, just for, before we go any further, that's a district court case of a criminal nature, and it's not a binding precedent at all. But it, there were some nuances to that case, but there was a person charged who had been registered in California and thought he didn't have to register anymore. He was traveling back and forth to Mexico, and that's what happened uh, in that particular case. But, but anyway, and ahead. then
1: Yeah, sure. The court stated, in light of the specificity and gravity of the current and potential injuries plaintiffs allege... The clear nexus to the conduct they complain of and the potential for redress in the form of injunctive relief, plaintiffs establish standing for all their claims. The court also finds each ripe for resolution. What do you people say in response to that?
2: Well, the law is subjective to interpretation. I say that the judge is giving every benefit of the doubt and allowing the case to move forward. How long it remains alive is yet to be seen because the injunction is very narrow and most of their claims actually have been, in my opinion, extinguished by this ruling. And we'll get into those later.
1: Um, Let's see. Can we then take a a look at the various claims in the court's decision of their likelihood that they will exceed on the merits of trial? What did they say about due process?
2: Well, uh, they said because of the rule, in conjunction with 18 United States Code 2250, Fails to provide the minimum procedural safeguards required by the Constitution, it violates due process. Mm -hmm. Plaintiffs demonstrate a likelihood of success on the merits with their due process claim. And that's on the order on page 31. So on their due process claim, they have established a likelihood of success on that one claim.
1: All right. And then what did they say on the First Amendment claim, the chilling of speech?
2: Uh, on balance, the court finds that plaintiffs raise a substantial question as to whether the rule imposes an imp- impermissible burden under the First Amendment. Nonetheless, on the sparse record before bef- on the record before it, as the current procedural posture demands, the court is unable to conclude that plaintiffs demonstrate a likelihood of success on the merits. In light of the court's ruling on their due process claim, however, the ongoing burdens on free speech plaintiff allege and the meaningful chance to prevail on their First Amendment claim further tips in favor of granting the motion. So again, that's in the order on page 37 and 38. So they're saying that claim is somewhat alive, but there's not enough of a a record to really evaluate the likelihood of success. But they're combining it with that there is a claim that's alive on the due process, so they're given the benefit of the doubt. So they got one good claim They've got a claim that could possibly gain traction, depending on what the evidence brings to the court later.
1: And then on to the big one in terms of the non-delegation. This is the whole deep state, big state, whatever. Isn't that? Isn't that what the non-delegation clause was? That was um, God. I can't remember the guy's name. What was that case? Gundy. Gundy. Thank you, sir. Isn't that what this is? Yes. Okay. I know the one drives you. I thought this is the one that drives you insane. You've repeatedly pontificated that there's no merit to that claim. And what did the court say to that?
2: Uh, well, thankfully, they agreed with me on that. The court finds that plaintiffs do not demonstrate a likelihood of success on the merits of, the, of their non-delegation claim. That's in the order on page 37. So that one's effectively going to go down to crapper, in my opinion. <laughs>
1: I'm, I'm sorry, go down the what?
2: The crapper. <laughs>
1: You were around when that guy invented the thing, weren't you? You knew Mr. Crapper.
2: I helped him invent it.
1: (laughs) One of the claims that the government violated the Administrative Procedures Act. What did the court say about the likelihood of success on that claim?
2: Well, the court said while the equities may favor plaintiffs, and the court might have been inclined to rule in favor if this were a matter of first impression, meaning the first time this has come up, The weight of the statutory and precedential authority cuts against interpretation, the interpretation plaintiffs seek. Accordingly, the court cannot conclude that plaintiffs are likely to succeed on the APA, the Administrative Practices Act, Procedures Act. And that's on page 43. So, again, when we talk about precedential cases, the lower courts, this is a federal district court, trial level court, they're bound to take into account the existing precedent. And then press, the press it on this. You guys, you need to let go of this claim. It is not going to go anyplace, folks. It just isn't.
1: Um, so, do we need to move on? I mean, the, is there anything else that we're going to cover on this one?
2: Well, we're going to talk about the injunction itself.
1: Okay. Um... The court begins with the easiest questions of scope. The court has held that plaintiffs are likely to succeed on the merits of their due process claim. They have raised a substantial question as to the lawfulness of the rule under the first amendment. Since any relief must be tailored to that, which is necessary to give prevailing parties, the relief to which they are entitled it must follow that plaintiffs would not be entitled to relief, redressing harms following from their non-delegation and conflict with statutory text claims. Moreover, while the court is mindful of the present and future chilling effects plaintiffs allege under the First Amendment claim, the court has found that the claim alone would be be insufficient to justify granting the motion. Accordingly, injunctive release must be tailored closely to plaintiffs' due process claim. This suggests, Larry, that the injunction is very narrow indeed. Would you elaborate, please, and explain that?
2: Yes, and I found that language there in that long paragraph you read to be interesting because on the First Amendment claim, which that, that is the biggie that people are so obsessed about having to give up their monikers, their, their Internet identifiers, uh, that standing alone, the court just told you that it would be insufficient. So therefore, that is a weak claim as it exists right now, unless there's some significant development it comes forward. Uh, but in terms of the injunction, the court solution, and they say it's imperfect as it is, uh, but I'm going to read uh, what they said, uh, the, the injunction. The federal government is enjoined from prosecuting any California resident under 18 United States Code 2250 for any violation of sort of the rule or other regulation without first abiding by the following requirements. Now, this is a little bit of that legislating from the bench here. Number one, the court has decreed that in all such prosecutions, the federal government must seek and obtain certification from the state of California that the individual was required to register under California law. Number two, in a prosecution concerning a failure to provide specific information required by the statute or regulation, as opposed to a failure to register altogether, the federal government must seek and obtain certification from the state of California that California law allows the individual to furnish that information to state authorities. What do you What do you think?
1: Um, the language is <laughs> not
2: good to say the least, right? <laughs> yes, uh, it would. It it sh- it should not be difficult to obtain the certification as required in the first bullet point that a person was required to register in California. Their databases would probably have that information because if the person was convicted there, they would probably have that. And if they were previously registered, they would probably have that. But what about the person who wasn't convicted there and who relocated to California and was relieved of registration in another state prior to their arrival there? What about that person? Now they're they're having this imaginary boogeyman in their head that they're gonna be prosecuted California doesn't even know they were th- that they're there because they've, they've were released in whatever state you pick one lawfully and they're sitting and trembling in fear that they're going to be prosecuted. How would California deal with that? And on bullet point number two, what does it mean it says California when it says that California law, they have to get certification that California laws the collection of the information? What if the person is not required to register in California and the law has discharged them? This is a viable scenario. So what does, it, what does it mean as opposed, when they say permits disclosure, as opposed to requires disclosure of the information? I don't know if the California law requires it. I don't register there. I don't know that. But you're getting into some very dangerous territory here with because this is problematic from a constitutional standpoint. The law is supposed to be specifically and succinctly tailored and drafted with language that anybody ordinary intelligence can understand and what the judge has created here for for the language for the injunction to me is further confusion
1: (laughs) so is this good news or bad news
2: uh well it's good news until the case remains alive uh if you're wanting the case to remain alive it's good news it's bad news if you don't get the answer you're looking for everybody assumes magically, that they're going to get the right answer from the court. What happens if the court has decided, ultimately decides that, you remember the Wilman case out of the Sixth Circuit? What if the court in California ultimately decides that this is all good stuff and the case is resolved against the challenging parties? And they say, now, nobody's ever told them that they had to register. And what if the court says, well, after reviewing everything, You do have to register again, even though you were dutifully discharged. Is that the answer you wanted? Why did you pose the question?
1: So tell me then what will happen next? We're starting to get a little short on time, but so what will happen next, do you think?
2: Well, either this case proceeds to trial or the parties will file motions for summary judgment. Oh, that's your favorite thing in the world. It is indeed, but that's what's going to happen here. I can't see this case settling. I really can't see how they would settle this case. I don't know what you could do to settle this case. So therefore, if it's referred for settlement negotiations, I don't know what a settlement would look like. And therefore, it seems like it has to play itself out as in trial. And since nobody likes to go to trial, they like to have summary judgment. They don't like to develop an evidentiary record that can hold up they support the case on appeal like we happen to have in Colorado with the uh, case that Judge Maitre decided without evidence will end up in a bad posture, I'm afraid. I have great trepidation about this case. I really do. Do you
1: see that there could be harm depending on how the judgment goes?
2: Absolutely. If they rule against the plaintiffs and say, absolutely, you do have a federal duty to register and you're off the registry and you've got a federal court saying you have a duty to register, then if California wants to, they say, welcome back.
1: And so if they all of a sudden say that there's a federal duty to register, does that then apply
2: nationally? I don't think so. The, the court was okay. very careful in the injunction that uh, in saying that. And that's what has been posed as another question. What happens nationally? Well, I don't think that we'll know that until the cases are launched across the nation. But this could set the precedent for answers that we don't want.
1: Because you... I would, you... It's like frequently argue with people that there is no federal duty to register. If I'm not mistaken, you've argued with actual attorneys like, you know, college graduate, whatever uh attorneys saying that there is a you say that there isn't, they say there is a federal registry.
2: Well, I mean clearly there isn't. They can argue to their blue in the face, there's not a federal registry. <laughs> there, I know that there's there, a federal website. I know that there there is a duty to register that the feds can enforce when they have the requisite jurisdictional hook, and arguably that would be for all federal offenses, they could conceivably, they could create an independent registry of people who've been convicted of federal offenses. But if you've been convicted of a state offense, there just isn't the jurisdictional hook for the feds to require you to do anything. Because that's the same thing with the, when you look at your automobiles, you register them with the state, there's no federal registry. Now, there is some something that resembles a federal registry for trucks, because guess what? They're engaged in interstate commerce, which creates yeah, that jurisdictional hook.
1: Right. And folks, right. there
2: is no jurisdictional hook. The feds have created a jurisdictional hook when you cross state lines, when you travel in interstate commerce and you fail to register. But again, my position remains that if the state that you are and doesn't want you to register and will not register you, you're done. Because the feds cannot continue to prosecute you if the state won't register you. Now, what this is going to potentially open up is a lot of states are going to start registering people they are going to change their statute language or either by administrative or by, or by legislative action, they're going to change their wording and their regulatory scheme to say that if the person is defined as a PFR under the federal sorta guidelines, that they're going to be required to register in their state. Folks, why are you asking these questions? These are bad answers that you're going to get. I don't understand it. I'm not able to comprehend it. I'm just a slow learner, I guess.
1: Clearly, you need to uh, do do one of those brain game things on your phone so that you can increase your IQ. That's what you need to do there. So you can be smarter.
2: I'm working on it. But I'm, right. I'm too old now. i 179 years old.
1: <laughs> Is there anything else I, I, I will give you? 60 seconds of rant.
2: I've have ranted enough tonight.
1: Very good. Um well without anything else then um I I will say that one of our patrons is incredibly generous and has become generouser er and I can't thank you enough. You know who you are if you've recently further con- uh, increased your support of the program and I can't thank you enough. Um and uh so I'm going to close things out unless you have anything else, Larry.
2: Well, I think that proves that what uh, what was said in that spot last week about uh, (laughs) episode 250. uh, You people listen to anything? I guess people will do anything. So, but we do. I think here's the button.
0: Registry Matters and FYP Studios are proud to present their 250th episode. This just goes to prove you people will listen to anything.
1: there you go all right so you can find all of the show notes over at registrymatters.co and fypeducation.org for where the transcript lives these days and uh i'll leave all that you can find all the other links to everything uh there at registrymatters.co and finally uh make sure if you want to support the program you can go over to patreon.com slash registry matters to support the program which is greatly appreciated uh we both have day jobs but to make this whole project Uh, a little bit more, uh, whatever. Anyway, it helps that you support the program.
2: That's what I want to say.
1: That's what I have. Anything else, Larry, before we get out of here?
2: Well, this case is one of the most interesting cases that people are fixated on. This and the international Megan's Law, these things are really fascinating to people. And I think that if you've been discharged from the registry, you need to move on with your life. There are better things to worry about than all this stuff, really. <laughs> so, but that's just my personal opinion. You can worry and obsess if you want to, but I think you're overthinking this. This, this Overthinking is just not good. It isn't.
1: Agreed. Well, thank you all very much. Uh, thank you, all the folks in chat. There's a whole slew of people in there. I thank you all for joining us this evening. And for those of you out in internet land, thank you all for listening or watching on YouTube and all that. And we will see you in a week or so. Thank you all very much and have a great night.
2: Good night.
0: You've been listening to FYP.